Have you been looking for a way to stay focused on your goals and grow your MSP? Accountability groups from Rocket MSP can help. We offer weekly accountability sessions that meet online with a group of your peers. Your success begins with accountability. Go to www.rocketmsp.io to join your accountability group today. All right, preparing live stream. It's, it's happening. So welcome everyone to another installment of MSP webinars. I'm Steve, your host. Uh, today we've got some panelists uh, who I'm, uh, I'm very excited to introduce to you guys. We have uh, Mike Clark, we have Zach Johnson, and we may or may not have Quentin Comer. Uh, all three of these guys are, uh, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're on there, man. You, you, you got, you got stuck in this. Um, we, we probably won't have quitting. <laughs> so, um, we're going to talk virtualization today. Um, I, I think, I think what we are going to do is just kind of dive right in. Uh, Mike, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, just kind of like a mile high overview of, of how much you use virtualization in in today? Oh, sure. Uh, well, first of all, how's the uh, mic coming through? Is it clear? You sound great. Okay. Wonderful. Because I just hooked up about 10 minutes ago. Um, yeah. So my name's Mike. You guys know me from the, uh, MSP chat SS Mike, um, Virtualization, we use it every single day. Uh, we no longer install physical servers unless there is some dire requirement, uh, which to date we haven't seen very often. Uh, usually it's vendors that don't know what they're talking about. Um, but uh, even database servers, SQL servers, uh, we still virtualize that these days. Um, we run our RMM tool is on uh, virtualized SQL. Um, yeah, so I've been dealing with virtualizations. Ooh, let's see, I started with ESX, um, however many years ago that was, uh, whenever four was around. Um, then we moved into Hyper-V just because when 2012 Hyper-V came out, it just blew up, you know. Uh, the cost benefit was just there. Um, our low-end customers that just were getting a new server, you know, we just threw a VM on there instead of dealing with driver issues and and just to make things easier for everybody but the, the biggest benefit obviously is most of you guys are going to know is just reboots um it, it's almost instantaneous it's just worth it um i did see one q a question here vmware versus hyper-v Depends we're not on- we're not going there yet <laughs> i wanted to answer that one kind of early just like anything os versus coke windows it all depends on the situation right mm-hmm. um you know i like vmware uh you know i've got my vmware binder um but as general use we go with uh hyper-v these days it's just uh just a matter of what the uh the circumstances call for but i've been doing this for oh over a decade now uh, done some presentations for VMware over the years on virtual desktops, uh, VDI, when Vue 4.1 came out with PCOIP. Uh, yeah, so I've been dealing with this a long time. Uh, IT service manager for an MSP. A lot of MSPs are going to be watching this, so I do a lot of what you guys do. Excellent. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Zach, you don't you don't have a camera, do you, Zach? I do not. It's okay. 
we'll we'll make it work. Zach, if you could please uh, introduce yourself and talk to us a little about how you use virtualization today. Well, I'm Zach Johnson. I've been in IT in one form or another for about 17 years, and I actually started with virtualization back when uh, Zen and uh, Virtual PC first came out in like, God, what was that, like 2004? That was a long time ago. But uh, as far as where I use virtualization, I'm much like Mike, anywhere and everywhere, all the time. Like, I don't, I don't do physical anymore unless there's a dire need. And, you know, that need is very, very rare. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I've done a lot of, you know, VDI, RDS clusters, uh, application delivery. Um, I did PCO, PCOIP, like, back when... The, the correct way to do that was to have a farm of desktops in a warehouse and <laughs> broker remote desktop sessions to that. So that was a long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, I've been doing it a long time and uh, I'm pretty good at it, I think. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Quentin, I know, I know you got roped into this at the literal last minute. Would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, that's what it is. It's his. It's his microphone. I think. Yeah. So Quentin, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but you sound like a chipmunk. He does. That's just the way I sound. <laughs> is that better? That is extremely better. <laughs> so, um, director of technology, we are, uh, uh, I work similar to Mike for a copier dealership, uh, multiple branches, and I oversee our technology division. We have um, kind of three distinct offerings as far as technology goes, and managed IT is one of them. Um, so I've been in and out of the managed services industry quite a few times, keep jumping back and forth between enterprise and service provider and then enterprise and then service provider again. Um, been using virtualization since like VMware 2, 3. I think that was the very first time I started working with it. And uh, <clears throat> that was back when nobody trusted it. So <laughs> like uh, it, it wasn't really, didn't really catch on yet, you know? And so we started playing with it back then. And then obviously throughout the years started progressing more and more with it. And uh, I've managed both VMware and Hyper-V, um, large VMware farms, you know, with uh, 50, 60 hosts and hundreds and hundreds of VMs servicing both uh, internal infrastructure and rented or, or sourced infrastructure to um, this was when I was in, in education. We actually resold the services um, and the VMs to other school districts uh, for hosting their infrastructure. And, um, you know, obviously smaller farms internally and in the managed services space. And then uh, Hyper-V, both in enterprise and um, uh, managed services industry and just consulting gigs too. And um, used uh, VDI on both. Um, virtualization for the infrastructure on both. 
uh, SCVMM, which is System Centers Enterprise Management for um, Hyper-V virtualization, and then obviously the VMware and vSphere infrastructure too. Hmm. Cool. Um, and and I just want to I just want to vouch for Mike and Quentin, uh, even though they are working at copier companies that also do IT, uh, these guys these guys truly do know their stuff. Um, I've had the privilege of of having conversations with these guys for has it has it been a year now? I feel like it's been a while by now since and, the chat uh, started. That was like last April. I try and block yeah. it out. Yeah, he, <laughs> they they try to forget me as as much as possible because I I uh, like to get myself in situations where everyone just likes to pick on me, but uh, it, it's all love. I know it. So so I want to uh, I just want to dive right in. Um, it, it sounds like uh, you guys all have just mo mostly decided that there's no when do I virtualize it's I virtualize and that's that's just it if you've got servers they will be virtual servers there's gonna be a host somewhere but everything else is gonna be virtualized yeah even single server installs are, are virtual yep yep same Correct. here single server uh, virtualize it and run it that way yeah and the benefits too it just they they outweigh all the cons you know uh, you're essentially making your server portable uh, mm -hmm. backups are so much easier when you're and faster it. yeah that, that as well and like you know who doesn't absolutely love the fact that you can take a snapshot and then try some crazy stuff to troubleshoot <laughs> i mean <laughs> as long we, as it's we... not a domain controller in a multi-dc uh, environment right yes uh, uh, just, that, that's a very good point uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just like, Hey, that application server is acting up. We have no idea what we're doing. Snapshot, go poke at it. Excellent. So I, I agree now. Now I, I have an MSP. However, mine is smaller and my, my server environments are typically like five and less. Um, most of my server environments are like a one or two server environment. But even then, I, I do the same thing. I virtualize. And the, the fact remains that it is easier to manage a virtual environment. Uh, one, if you have to do a server reboot, that thing boots up a heck of a lot quicker than waiting on, you know, your, your nice big Dell PowerEdge or whatever uh, to, to boot up. Um, and having no idea if it's demanding that you hit F11 for whatever. Exactly. And wait half an hour and, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and you two, have to deal with remote access cards in a lot fewer instances now. Mm -hmm. and, and two, you know, another great point is, uh, backups are tremendously easier with tools like Veeam and Altaro and Dano and everything else that's out there. Uh, but the thing that I like the most about being virtual is um, typically my my hardware has, has almost been kind of over-provisioned, if you will. So if I know I need 16 gigs of RAM, I'll, I'll have 32 in the host just in case or whatever, you know. So for me, I just provision a little extra if, if something's acting goofy and, you know, we don't have to open up the case and actually physically install stuff because it's already in there. So, you know, it's, it's just the dumb little things that, that make virtualizing uh, so much more convenient for us as IT administrators. However, the, the interesting thing I've, I've 
never been able to figure out is when do you use VMware versus Hyper-V? Because I feel like VMware has a lot of really cool and powerful tools that Hyper-V either doesn't or doesn't advertise very well. So a lot of those features that that you're talking about, Hyper-V has most of them. Um, it's just a matter of whether or not you use um, System Center in conjunction with it. If you're just talking about a standalone host or a standalone hypervisor, yeah, they're about the same. Um, actually, as far as backing up, uh, if you use ESX, you have to use the paid version. Otherwise, you don't get access to the API. Um, whereas Hyper-V, it's a little more common, uh, or rather it's easier to do. Um, we deal with that because we use SolarWinds backup. Um, and the only customers that we can back up if they're using uh, VMware is the ones that have the full paid version. Um, whereas our standard small server installs, which we did one not too long ago, uh, application server, single application uh, or single server environment, we just went with Hyper-V because we can just back it up easily. Um, now, one of the features that I like, and I haven't, I, I will admit, I haven't gotten totally up to date with uh, vSphere's capabilities, but one of the ones that I just found out about not too long ago is Hyper-V has shared nothing live migration. And I actually had the chance to test that out, and it is beautiful. If you don't have a full, um, highly available fault-tolerant solution in place, uh, you don't have to have a dedicated uh, VLAN for your uh, your live migrations or anything like that. You just have two Hyper-V hosts. You take the VM from one, you have to enable replication, but you uh, you can just dump it onto the other one. You move the entire virtual disk, the entire virtual machine, maybe half a second of downtime, but I had a live connection up to it and uh, watched it migrate from one host to another, and there was no delay. Actually uh, really another well. thing to point out that uh, that shared nothing uh, live migration, uh, you can also do shared nothing replica for poor man's HA. So you can have two hosts with no shared storage set up the replica and set the interval to as low as five minutes. So it's basically doing a live migration every five minutes. You'll want 10 gigabit between the hosts, by the way. Uh, but if you have a really low budget client and you want solid uptime without spending a lot of money, that is a good way to do it. You want to be careful about domain controllers and that, um, but it is a great cost effective option. Awesome. Yeah. Just as the, the basis for anybody that doesn't know that don't replicate, don't restore, uh, you can snapshot domain controllers, but from an Active Directory perspective, uh, you don't restore domain controllers. It's easier to rebuild a domain controller in a multi-DC environment than it is to uh, try to restore one and have replication break. Right, exactly. Why? Which is why in best practice when you're doing the poor man's HA with replica, two DCs, one on each host. Mm -hmm. That's the way you do that. That's that's an excellent practice. Now we we do have a couple of questions. Um, <clears throat> now Andy asked two questions, and I'm going to ask them backwards. What is your migration path after sales? And Andy, you might need to elaborate on that some. Yeah, I, I think I have an idea of what he's 
So for us personally, um, it goes back to a little bit picking which hypervisor where. For us specifically on our on our managed services side, it's always Hyper-B. Um, if you're a managed service customer, you're getting Hyper-B. Um, enterprise implementations where we're acting as a VAR or professional services or reseller, you might examine the environment and evaluate what is the best solution for their environment. Um, but uh, um, it might be VMware sometimes. So I'm a little different than some other folks. I, I don't necessarily pitch both. It really, or either one or the other, it depends on the environment. But for managed services specifically, it's always Hyper-V. Uh, the reason is because of our backup solutions and our disaster recovery and continuity, uh, we use Veeam. So it makes it really easy. I can put a Windows um, server in there as the BDR appliance, run Hyper-V on it, have it be the storage repo as well, and I can fill right over to that device. So, um, if you're running VMware as your hypervisor, you can't do that. You need a proxy in order to do that. So you need twice as much hardware if you're trying to attempt to do the same thing with VMware. Um, and so to answer Andy's question is a little bit, um, during onboarding, there's nothing to pitch to the customer. We virtualize them automatically. We don't, we don't support physical servers for our managed service customers. Um, during the onboarding process, essentially what we'll do is we'll come in and we will actually bring our BDR appliance in. That's the very first thing we do before we touch anything. We bring in our appliance, start backing up to it, and we can actually schedule a period of time where we fail them over to that backed up VM and start using that while we rebuild their host, their, their production hardware. And then we'll fail them back over on their production hardware with that VM. So we always virtualize during onboarding. It's not an option. It's not a discussion. It's not something we pitch to them. It's part of our onboarding. Excellent. Um, so <clears throat> what what is the the process I, timeline you take to migrate to virtual? So it sounds like I kind of wanted that... to pick up a point on his Hyper V only for managed services. Mm -hmm. We're the same way. Managed services gets Hyper V. And there's a sp specific strategic reason that I chose to do that. Um, and that is, if you look at the salaries of techs that know how to do stuff, a sysadmin uh, tier two or tier three that knows how to work with Hyper-V costs about 40% less than uh, a VMware expert. And so there's, there's some strategic value in using something that is as simplified and dummied down uh, and is well documented with TechNet and all of that uh, as Hyper-V. So are you saying that you're being cheap? I'm being strategic. <laughs> we're providing solutions that we can easily support. Yes. Right? We're, we're, we're selling an expectation to a customer is what you're selling. You're selling an expectation and a service. So the, the best way, if, if you can learn Active Directory, group policy, exchange, things like that, assimilating them into a hypervisor that's formed around Windows is much easier. So, um, Zach, uh, when, when it comes to 
you know, you, you pitch a new on uh, a new MSP client, they have physical computers. Um, what does that look like for you? I mean, does it just you, you switch them to virtual and that's that under discussion? Yep, when does that happen much. and how does that happen? Is, is it like identical to Quinton or do you operate a little it's, differently? It's very, very similar. I mean, like I use uh, both Veeam and SolarWinds backup depending on scale and fit. Uh, but we'll go in and like pull a backup from the physical server and then I'll restore it to my Hyper-V host. And then we'll do a controlled failover and run into production. So very similar to what what uh, Quentin said. Um, I don't do BDRs unless there's like the expectation that they want high uptime. I'll do a NAS on site and then be able to restore an image and VM from that. Uh, but that's you know again a strategic decision on my part. I'm starting to understand when you use that word strategic what you really mean. that's that's like uh this this one guy local here he never says i run into a i've run into a problem he always says i have a new opportunity today (laughs) and it's just i love that positive spin (laughs) in our previous conversations i told you about my margins so (laughs) yes this is true um all right mike how about you uh i guess the same question so we don't enforce uh, moving to virtual platforms, um, mostly because a lot of the clients that we take on are older nonprofit. Um, their hardware may not necessarily support virtualization. We've actually run into a couple where there's been some old servers um, where they may have uh, VT or they may not. Um, and I'm not dealing with any kind of virtualization on a platform or a processor that doesn't have VT. Um, but it just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. So what we end up doing is most of the time there's an onboarding project involved. And the reason that we're brought in is because things are out of date. So usually in those situations, we're spinning up new servers anyway. So those are going to be virtualized. Um, but we don't necessarily go through the, uh, uh, physical to virtual migration very often. And not to say it hasn't been done, but it's a little more rare. Um, but, uh, touching on the, the same side with the BDR, we don't enforce a BDR at all of our customers. Um, we do have the ability to bring those up in our data center, uh, since we host our own backup, uh, storage nodes for SolarWinds and we have our own hosts in our data center. We can actually spin them up in our colo as opposed to having a BDR on site. Um, so I just wanted to throw you a little bit of a comparison to how, you know, three different MSPs operate. So I think uh, we're, we're pretty similar. I, I suppose I, I went based on the premise that none of their hardware needs to be replaced during onboarding. That's just a standard onboarding procedure, but we're, we're pretty similar. We do an assessment before we ever propose a customer managed services. Um, we can't set an expectation and support something if we don't know what it is. And so um, we'll do similar to Mike. If uh, we go in and we do our assessment, we'll propose a remediation project first which might include hardware, new servers, things like that. And then as part of that process, they're already virtualized. So it's pretty, pretty. although it's, it's slightly different, it's almost exactly the same because we go into environments where the hardware is at that age, we're doing the remediation, we're not onboarding them. 
and I don't know about you guys, but we've been running into so many problems recently with onboarding new customers whose domains or servers are just in a disaster to begin with that we end up just essentially starting from scratch. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, been a lot of instances recently where we've taken on customers and we walk in and we find out that, you know, somebody's gone in on their domain controller, pointed their DNS to global and, uh, you know, it's a single DC environment. Sometimes we're able to bring it back, sometimes not dealing with a lot of tombstone objects, stuff like that. So we deal with a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, ignored, uh, infrastructures and we end up going in there and cleaning a lot up yeah i don't think that's too uncommon we'll try and address minimal amounts during onboarding cleaning up some, some group policies maybe cleaning up some ad accounts maybe some shares but the second we're starting to invest time essentially rebuilding their implementation it's a it's a remediation and yeah sometimes rather than trying to go backwards and figure out what's not broken it's easier to just start from scratch. Take good backups, always backups. Very first thing you do is backups. But uh, start sometimes start from scratch, and sometimes that might be on new hardware and infrastructure. So allow them to work on their current, you know, while you're putting together their new, and then you're good to go. Excellent. Now, so for for small environments, what is the lowest spec? hardware you go for like if we're talking one or two vms um so we we always go for uh hardware that obviously xeon processors we don't do the gb rig stuff where you run an i7 quad core with vms on it on a dell workstation i, I see that constantly um we don't do that we go in it's xeon hardware you know depending on their, their demands if it's pretty small you know, we can get away with a single processor, you know, most come standard average around eight cores. So you're good to go there. And we always split it out. So um, at a minimum, our customers always have two VMs. One is a domain controller, and one is, can be a file print server, or depending on the line of business application, file print line of business. But the second that line of business application starts to become a true line of business application, we split it out into its own server as well. We always have something that can support a minimum of two servers um, or two VMs and uh, rank six, <laughs> rank <laughs> 10. Parity <laughs> uh, rate over two terabytes is just a bad idea. <laughs> and, um, so, um, you know, we'll typically split it out and the host will get smaller drives. Uh, maybe an ARRAID 1, you know, for the host OS. And then the data stores will run in ARRAID 10. Um, nothing smaller than, we usually go uh, nothing smaller than 15,000 RPM uh, SAS drives. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we kind of go from there. So we separate out the data store where we're going to be hosting the VMs and stuff separate from the drives that are running the uh, hypervisor. How about you, Mike? Do do your like minimum uh, specs, so to so to speak, differ? Similar. Uh, about uh, it's going to be at least a single core processor, uh, eight core. Although I think with the new Dell lineup, they're bumping that up even higher. Um, <clears throat> uh, we have 
roughly 32 gigs of RAM minimum, although these days we're actually going for 64. Um, always do RAID 10 uh, unless it's some crazy large uh, storage thing, which that'll have a custom solution for it. Um, I, I was joking, but not joking about Parity RAID uh, that large. I just don't like Parity RAID these days. Um, uh, but yeah, 10 or 15 K drives is our average, but if it's a very, very <clears throat> low budget customer, you know, we're not opposed to putting 7,200 RPM drives in there. Um, as long as it's you know, less than 10 users or so. Um, right. And you set the expectation about how this is going to perform. Right. Exactly. Uh, you still get a lot of the benefits of up it even on 7,200 RPM drives, but uh, just not as much. And Zach, uh, any differences for you with hardware? Nope. Very similar. 32 gigs, single core, at least eight CPU, like, you know, or single socket, eight CPUs, uh, 32 gigs of RAM, and RAID 10, uh, 15,000 RPM. Sometimes SSDs, and and that that kind of helps us uh, lead into the next question. What are your thoughts on solid state drives and servers? Um, this person recently had a vendor say, "No, don't put solid states in their application server." I'd like to know the reasoning behind that. Agreed. I kind of would too. Um, I feel like SSDs are are just. I mean, I love them. As long as it's server quality. Yeah. Know, right. Going and buying like don't, a. Don't go buy SanDisk like desktop SSDs and slap them in a server. So so we shouldn't get the uh, the OCZ. Whatever <laughs> <laughs> those are called now. Yeah. Now, um, you know, Samsung, uh, Intel, they both make very high quality. Uh, silver quality drives um you know, i will say that dell charges an arm and a leg for them um i really don't think that their cost is associated well rather their uplift is worth it um but there are cases where we've done it even recently uh where we've dropped solid states and application servers we knew it was going to be running sql um we wanted the iops so yeah why not uh, now, I will say that we didn't do pure solid state throughout the entire uh, server. We had uh, some spinning disks for data storage. Um, but yeah, the OS core applications, um, yeah, that's all running on solid states and we love it. Yeah, and I've been doing some some stuff with NVMe for VDI, which performs very, very well for that purpose. Cool. What so have you been running? I'm sorry? What have you been running? Uh, the Intel M NVMe drives. Like, uh, I got some of the smaller ones. We're labbing them out, and uh, they're basically a giant PCI Express card you slap in there, and it's, you know, capable of, like, you know, 750,000 IOPS um, running Citrix Zen Desktop. Hmm. Okay. So we, um, you know, I don't, I don't put solid state drives in as a standard. I know a lot of folks are moving to that. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I think there's good future proofing behind it. Um, on the flip side, I also believe there's a cost to doing business. 
and that needs to be um, communicated and educated to our customers. Um, too many times folks allow the customer to dictate the solution, whether it's based on price or whatever it might be. But so I kind of, you have to evaluate the scenario. We don't do solid state as a standard across servers unless there's a need for it. Uh, we'll typically go 15,000 RPM, like I said earlier, you know, SAS drives in a RAID 10. Um, but as environments scale or line of business application changes, your needs and expectations change. So it's, it's kind of based on the expectations and needs of the environment. You know, if we do have a high intensity line of business application, well, environments that are getting to that size, they're probably not your typical single processor, 32 gig of RAM, single host implementation. You're probably looking at a DAS or SAN or, you know, something along those lines. And then you're able to implement solutions like caching, you know, with SSD drives and things like that. So the scale really changes, but um, so it's, it's kind of based on the environment. We do have some customers where they, they have a um, data store that's on SSD because of their line of business application and they actually only have three VMs. You know, they just happen to be a small environment that does a lot of transactions in business. Um, so not all environments are the same, but at the same token too, um, we go in with the solution that we feel is right and it's accurately sized and proposed for their environment. Um, whatever we determine that is based on the needs and expectations and that's what we propose to them. So there's, there's kind of two sides of it, you know? Right, and one thing to remember is that when you're specking this box for this virtualization, you're not specking for what they need right now. You're specking it for what they're going to need in five years when this thing is coming up for replacement. I feel an RMM discussion coming on based on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's, yeah. You don't order for what they have now. What they have now, you're replacing. You order yeah, because I've, I've, you know, had, you know, sales meetings with a lot of clients and they're like, okay, like we want a new server. And I'm like, okay, what do you need now? And I'm like, okay, what are you, what are your growth projections over the next five years? And they're like, oh, well, in five years, we plan on having, you know, 14 more employees. And so that's going to change, you know, what I'm going to spec because I got to support this thing, you know, for the next five years. And when they double or triple the workload on it, you know, that's going to change what I'm going to spec. Yeah. It's all about so, expectations. It, it's, it's, it's all about what we're proposing and how it fits into their business and helps their business achieve their goals. You know, they tell us that piece, what their goals are, how their business operates, what their expectations are, and we develop the solution for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, somebody asked, um, they, they said the line between consumer and commercial SSD seems to be a gray area. Would you consider Samsung 850s to be consumer? And I personally would absolutely say yes. Um, and, and not only would I say yes, but I would say that uh, Samsung has a line specifically for servers, and that's like the PM series or the SM series of, uh, of solid state drives. Your thoughts, guys? Really a gray area. It's pretty black and white. There are drives or their consumer drives, and if you look up the Samsung website, 850 Pro, the very first thing 
it says is that it's a consumer drive. Mm. Right, right yeah, you, there on the website. Yeah, on, on the Samsung website, when you look at flash storage, there's client SSD and there's enterprise SSD. Um, it's, it's pretty cut and dry, in my opinion, that um, you, you, really, you really need to be on, on enterprise SSD. And that's, that's not just a function of performance either. Like, I, I think that's what he was getting at, is that the performance of the 850 Pro Consumer Drive compared to the PM or SM series, it's like, yeah, they perform similarly. They, they do, but the failure rate is going to be different. Right. That's and the exactly. reliability. That's actually not the biggest difference. Um, the biggest difference between consumer and commercial-grade drives is onboard capacitors. Um, yes. Your consumer mm -hmm. drives do not have them. They are liable to data loss in the event of loss of power. That's right. Uh, exactly. Drives. Yeah, that's and there's also some firmware functionality in the enterprise drives that is available to like storage subsystems and things like that that is pretty important as well. Right. There's also uh, SLC versus MLC versus TLC. Uh, your single layer. Uh, uh, come on, brain. Single layer cell. Um, basically, when it came to uh, your server uh, SSDs, you always wanted SLC or EMLC. Uh, then it became that you would want um, MLC and TLC was not allowed. And then Dell started talking about uh, uh, supporting trim and all of these other things, but it's still yeah. just not a good idea to put consumer grade drives into commercial environments. That's absolutely um, true. And even when you look at the Dell SSDs, most of those are Intel or Samsung rebranded enterprise drives. Yep. So let's talk about, let's, let's go down a few rungs on the ladder because I feel like we're talking uh, very high level stuff right now. And you never know, we, we want to appeal to all of the audiences. So, so let's talk uh, some best practices. How do you determine what specs you need for an environment. And I'm not talking for a small environment, for a big environment. How do you, how do you calculate uh, how much RAM, how many CPUs, how much disk space that you need for a virtual environment? So your disk space, um, that should be done during your assessment and evaluation. You should know how much data they have, how much they house. Um, your domain controller, DNS, file, print servers, those are fairly standard. Um, most of them only need one vCPU for 50 RAM, uh, unless you're doing anything crazy with uh, FSRM, in which case you want to throw a little more memory at it. Uh, it kind of comes down to the amount of users, type of line of business applications, uh, and you also have a, a bunch of factors to take into account. Um, but if it's a 20 user environment, it's really not that different from 100 user environment. Um, it's just a matter of scale. Um, you have to start looking into uh, redundancy. You have to start to look into the cost to the business. Um, you know, in, in a 10 person environment, uh, the server being down for 30 minutes, eh, well, it's a problem, but, you know, it's not going to kill them. 100 users, on the other hand, you can monetize how much they're losing. Uh, and they're more often than not, as long as they take their technology seriously, they're willing to put the money into the infrastructure to, mm -hmm. uh, to not happen. 
Uh, yeah, it's just kind of an example of that mon that monetizing the loss. Uh, at in one of my big enterprise jobs in my past, um, it was for call centers, and they track everything down to the minute. So they knew that an outage cost them around forty seven hundred dollars a minute for downtime. So that is absolutely was, nuts. So when stuff was down, it was a big deal <laughs> that is absolutely nuts nuts um so and that's when you go in you can say well you know we've got this great bdr solution and and that that comes to be a, a, a nice new sales pitch for them um right and that that segues nicely into the hyper v versus vmware discussion uh, because if you've got a client that like absolutely cannot tolerate any downtime ever, um, you know, going with you know VMware enterprise features with like FT and like you know instant failover, um, you know, bringing Veeam into the picture for like rapid disaster recovery and things like that, like you know, th that's where those types of conditions lead to exploring options like that that have you know extremely high cost to them excellent now <clears throat> how do you guys determine when you want to be in-house versus using a data center oh actually wait i'm sorry um i see a question in the chat zach how did they come to that number of, of 4700 a minute so in Big call center environments, they track everything, um, every task, every call. Uh, they break down the call into um, different portions of it. So like the greeting, the, the work done after call work, uh, idle time between calls. Um, and in, when you're outsourcing for like very large companies, usually um, the billing works out to like availability of agents – in seats per minute. Um, so there's your op minute minute opportunity cost. Um, you know the, the 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 financial analysts like have broken down you know the wage cost and you know figured out the minutes for that. Uh, there's a lot of math, uh, but yeah, that's you know they they took all of that big analytical data that they had and combined it together and could come up with uh, a lost revenue to wage and and lost opportunity cost. That's very cool. That's very cool. So now we'll now we'll go back to uh, the other question. When when do you determine when you want to be virtualized in house versus using a data center? And that could be a local data center where you are uh, uh, co-locating some hardware, or you could even be talking about Azure or Amazon or whatever. I guess I'll take that one. Um, so it all comes down again to cost to the business. Um, you know, we recently decided instead of building out a data center here in our headquarters office, we decided to just go ahead and go with uh, a local company. Um, you know, the cost for us to build out redundant HVAC, redundant uh, ISPs, uh, um, redundant power, all of it, it just wasn't worth it. Um, you know, we, we, did the math on it and it came out to be very high uh, and it just wasn't worth it for us. Um, so it all depends on the needs of the customer. Um, if they are a type of organization that is 
majority in one building, they could actually benefit from having that in-house because then you don't have all of the issues of um, uh, internet connectivity, uh, routing issues, all of the, the crazy stuff that comes around if they just need to be able to access their line of business applications on their virtual machines. Um, but in the instances of um, you know, dispersed companies, companies that have multiple offices, uh, which is something that we're going through because we've acquired two companies this year, um, that you, you just have to weigh the, the impact of business in the cases of if a site or an entire company goes offline. Um, you know, for us, uh, if we were to put, uh, well, here, let me, let me throw a customer out there. Uh, we have a customer, it's 200 and, I don't know, 250, 300 users. Um, but the majority of them are in their headquarters office. For them, the applications that they used, uh, it made sense for them to have most of their equipment uh, in their headquarters office. Um, as they've started to move to more cloud services, their branches have started to open up. They're using a lot more um basically internet connection as opposed to servers and headquarters. Uh, and it just makes sense for them to start to get that stuff out of headquarters, uh, start to put it out more because as they branch out further and further across the U.S. or across the world, um, it just doesn't make sense to keep it in-house anymore. Um, now, whether they want to keep that private or go public, in my opinion, Azure, uh, AWS, a lot of that stuff, you only do that if you need truly, truly highly available things. Um, in our case, we do, um, we're under an NDA, so I can't really talk about it, but we do something for a lot of companies all across the U.S. Um, and it's something that needs to be highly available. Uh, instead of putting that on our servers in our data center, we want AWS. Uh, but for our other line of business stuff, we have that in our data center. Well, I say our data center, but the rack that we lease. Sure. Um, you know, it, it all just, uh, it really comes down to needs. But Zach, and, did you have anything to add on that? I was going to say, I'll, I can wanted to speak a little bit about public cloud versus, you know, dedicated private cloud or even just dedicated hosting. Like, I make a very clear distinction between uh, dedicated servers and dedicated virtualization and private cloud and public cloud. Uh, so to me, uh, cloud is about uh, orchestration, and um, there's, an, there's a, a great analogy that's thrown around a lot talking about workloads, and are your workloads pets, or are they cattle? And so the analogy is that uh, a pet, when it gets sick, you take it to the vet, and you fix it, um, but if you have cattle and a cow gets sick, you drag it out back and you shoot it. Um, so You're not like, a nice person. <laughs> well, it's it's an apt analogy because that does work in agriculture. That's what they do with like sick cattle at, at that scale. It costs them less to just cull. And so, so if you if you take that a concept and, and apply it to line of business applications, or you know, you know, in this case, service delivery, um, you know, you, you construct your infrastructure uh, and workloads in such a way that they're elastic, and individual components of that infrastructure can be discarded as needed, uh, you know, above a certain threshold. 
So, you know, that's why, you know, Amazon and Azure like have all these different component services like, you know, database is separate from compute, which is separate from storage, which is, you know, separate from, you know, different tiers of storage. And so like you can build out your workloads so that um, let's say you've got a, a SaaS app that has this cattle like workloads and, you know, you get a log on storm. You know, it's 8 a.m. Everybody's logging in. Well, your your servers are getting overwhelmed. And so your application performance monitoring should see that and then start triggering orchestrated scripts that spin up additional load balancers, additional compute nodes um, and start, you know, balancing all those logons across more servers and then it handles it. And then when that's done and everybody's in and you don't need that, you know, extra uh, extra resources, it scales it back down. And that's the the big impetus behind all these public cloud vendors doing like hourly or in some cases minute um, uh, billing increments. Uh, because sometimes you just need a bunch more stuff for like 30 minutes and then it goes away. You know, those cattle are, are taken out back and shot. Uh, so that's that's where I kind of draw the line in like, does this need to be, are, you know, are these pet workloads or are these cattle workloads? And, you know, is there a discussion about should we convert these to cattle workloads? Does that make sense? You know, that kind of discussion. Interesting. Quentin, do you have anything that you'd like to add? You're muted. Oh, there we go. I said, I, I missed 90% of that, except for killing cattle and pets. <laughs> so, he doesn't kill the pets. He loves the pets. Yes. <laughs> uh, got it. So, so we were we were talking about when when do you when do you use in-house versus uh, a, an outsourced solution, whether it's a um, rack that you lease somewhere else or Azure, AWS, whatever. Uh, like internally or customers directly or for customers. <laughs> Should I just go op over the whole thing again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you start over, please? Uh, you know, it, it, it really depends. It depends on um, expectations, uh, deliverability of that service, and um, ultimately, potentially, depending on how they're spread out, if they're multi-branches, you know, things like that. Um, personally, I, I like to leverage the cloud if we can. Um, you know, we, we use Azure. Um, I post about it regularly in Discord. Um, I have some customers where we go in and it's, it's not an advantageous situation to slump a bunch of hardware in there um, because maybe they, they just don't need the hardware, you know? Um, they need a domain and they need a few other things. And so we'll spin up a DC in Azure and do a site-to-site -site VPN with a failover LTE and include that in their managed service agreement and away we go. You know, it, it makes our sales track a lot easier, reduces the capital expenditures, and uh, we still maintain our margin and our standards and the customer gets what they need as well. So it, it really kind of depends on, on the needs of the environment. Um, you know, uh, if it's a small, maybe it's a CPA firm or something like that, and we can get away with, you know, they, they access QuickBooks, they access like two or three applications, 
Uh, maybe they want to be able to access it remotely because they're out, you know, in our area, especially a lot of the CPA firms do auditing. So they'll audit school districts and county offices and things like that. We'll start talking hosted RDS for them, you know, or, or whatever it might be. Um, then that way it's a lot more scalable. It's easier to support and maintain and it's a lot more scalable too. At that point, the desktops become a commodity. They're just slightly irrelevant. We just replace them if they fail. And depending on the size of the customer, if we're looking at something where we go with that across the board, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe we include some low cost desktops or something like that. You know, if my margins are so high on that account um, that a desktop dies and I can replace it with a $200 refurb or $250 refurb because the, the desktop's just a um, gateway into their real environment, then I'm okay with that. But it, it completely depends on the environment, you know? It's, it's really hard to determine without having an example in front of you, but CPAs is probably the easiest one. Tax offices, things like that. Most of those you could probably get away with moving over to a completely hosted environment. Um, I specifically have, have one customer who does um, telemetry for agriculture. So essentially what they do is they go out and they install nodes and towers um, for the agriculture industry and they monitor, alert, and maintain crops for all their agriculture customers. Well, because of that, they have they have no computers. Their entire workforce is farmers and ag, you know, the people who go out and install it and stuff like that. So they have maybe one desktop computer that they use in their office, but they have 30 employees, you know? <laughs> so their infrastructure, we have them completely in Azure. And um, they have two VMs, and they're looking at standing up uh, an additional VM based on node counts every six to nine months. Um, there's, there's absolutely no reason for that to be on-premise for them. It needs to be highly available. It needs to scale as they scale. And uh, it needs to have processing power behind it. And so there's, there's no benefit in that scenario to bring that on-premise. So... I'll pose a question for you then. Um, so since this is targeted mostly towards MSPs, um, <clears throat> what would you say your opinion is on uh, building out your own private cloud to sell to your customers versus just going and reselling Azure or AWS? I think there's pros and cons. Um, to some extent, I step back some days and I look at it and we have the hardware to build out Polo, you know, and get it in there. It's something else to manage. It's capital expenditures for us as hardware dies and becomes replaced and things like that. Um, it's a lot more, it, it provides certain flexibilities that Azure and other scenarios don't, you know, because it's essentially 100% manageable and scalable by us. We're not relying on Azure's API or infrastructure or things like that. On the flip side, there's certain scenarios where Azure is far more dynamic than anything I could ever provide, um, you know, and scalable and their API is accessible and completely published. And um, for me personally, every time I come back to look at building out a colo or something for us, I can't find a good reason that I need to have absolutely jumped on it yesterday. There's a lot of there's a lot of things where it would benefit, you know, as I'm thinking things that we're rolling out or, or situations that we could improve. 
Um, as far as our, our offerings right now and what we're looking to in the future, um, we probably will go with the colo, you know, and, and, and do that and make that investment. But it's an investment, and it's not just an investment up front. It's an investment as you cycle hardware and replace it. It's an investment into um, technical resources to be able to manage it. There's a lot more when you look at total cost of ownerships, which, by the way, is the only conversation you should be having with customers is return on investment and total cost of ownership. You need to evaluate that internally as well. Um, That's a very good point. You know, I'd rather spend the time managing my customers' expectations and environments than my own. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm really happy with the service. I think it's very affordable through Azure, especially through the CSP program. Um, and it's, it's scalable. And, you know, I'm happy with it. So I can see us moving forward with it quite a bit. There, there are a lot of scenarios that, you know, I look at, so we use Veeam and we go to manage backup portal in Azure and that's where we host our environment. And I look at it and so taking that, for example, if I were hosting that in a colo, I could always spin up the customer's VM as a nested VM on my management server where I control the resources. I don't have to go to Azure and expand my resources or try to scale out live. You know, I can do that in a colo easily, right? I control it. All I got to do is right click new VM, set the resources on it, you know, and restore or fail over to that. And it's pretty easy. But I think, you know, going back to that, that's a lot more to manage and maintain and licensing a track every month with SPLAs and things like that. Um, so I, I don't think everybody should be a, a, against Azure or AWS or anybody else for that matter, right off the bat, you know, um, when it comes to competitors and other things like that, um, I can easily look at a lot of those and I can say uh, that my implementations are more secure than theirs just based on the facts alone, not based on how we implemented it, but the facts alone is their, their information is gonna be safer in Azure than some hodgepodge solution provided by another managed service provider. Um, you know, you, you have a capability of, uh, we call it uh, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You have the capability of dropping a lot of that in a sales um, situation with the customer, purely based on the fact that you're, you're using enterprise-grade enterprise cloud. I mean, hell, if it's good enough for the Department of Defense, why isn't it good enough for my small business clients? So I actually did a... Uh a demo yesterday uh, since we were talking about uh, automated scaling and things like that. And um, I know you guys are going to go, ah, oh, he's a Kaseya nerd, but um, I did a demo with uh, the product that they bought earlier this year called uh, Unigma. And one of the things that they were talking about was automated scaling of Azure AWS. Um, so they, they were actually walking me through some of their automated alerts and remediation for it. So they had um, an instance on Azure. It was a single CPU and they had an alert that said, oh, CPU is over 80% for however many seconds. And they scaled it up to a two uh, vCPU VM immediately. And I just thought that that was really, really neat. But it has a lot of different uh, pieces to it. But uh, since Zach was talking about the scaling side, that just uh, brought that to mind. 
Well, yeah. I mean, sure, you could potentially do that in your colo, assuming you have the hardware. <laughs> you know? But when, in Azure, we can do it at any given time. The, the resources are infinite as far as we're concerned, you know, and I think that provides a lot of value to that conversation. I think mm -hmm. scale, when you're talking scalability, high availability, failover, things like that, um, for the price that you pay, um, I think there's a lot of value to a relationship with Azure or, or AWS or whomever, you know. Um, with that being said, too, we we monitor, script, and automate a lot of Azure-related stuff in LabTech. Um, so that's been a pretty big push for me is that um, as we're moving forward, we're trying to really step back from each situation and evaluate, do we need infrastructure for this? Does the customer need infrastructure? Um, can we come to a better value-based proposition by throwing them in Azure? So because of that, we started to evaluate our automation and capabilities with, with Azure, with lab tech scripting and you know stuff like that. So we're able to resize hard disks in Azure and connect to it with uh, Azure RM, which is a PowerShell modules and stuff like that, out of scripts in, in lab tech. I can spin up VMs running a script from lab tech. You know, so you could do the same by monitoring the resources, uh, no different than an on-premise VM, and monitor it and trigger autofix actions to trigger a, a script that instead calls Azure and scales that CPU or hard drive as you grow too, you know? I think the scalability is key. I, yeah. I think with that being said too, I, I don't, and I always make it very clear, I don't sell the cheapest offering. I don't. Um, and that, that tends to be the argument against Azure and things like that is, is the price for some folks. Um, I've got some cust this customer right now, um, you know, I, I won't go into pricing. We assume that everybody in here is, is an MSP, but you got to be careful too with it being on YouTube and stuff like that. Um, but we've got a customer where they gladly paid 10 times more to go to fully hosted infrastructure in Azure because of the benefits behind it. They asked if they could pay up front for the year. <laughs> and and what benefits did you show them? Well, they fortunately for us, you know, sometimes your biggest sales advantage is your competition. So they were with our they were with one of our competitors. They they had hosted VMs by them in a colo, provided by that provider. Well, it was going down regularly. The specs, the speeds were slow. Things like that. And, you know, they say, well, we look at our VM and it says it has two CPUs and eight gigs of RAM and 200 gigs of hard drive space, but you, they don't know what's underlying on the host that that provider is using, you know. So they were constantly going down. They were having slowness issues. Their, their backups were questionable. They once had an opportunity that they needed to restore, you know, opportunity. They, didn't, they uh, had that opportunity that you were talking about earlier to restore and the provider didn't have it. So they lost six months of data. Um, and so they had situations where the power was going out. So the provider was borrowing a generator from them to power their, their data center. <laughs> so just absurd stuff. And so our value was that you need infrastructure that's available when you need it. We can provide that. What is it's what is it worth to you? 
what is the cost of downtime? What is the PR hit that when your customers that are paying you for your services are not able to access those services and then it costs them money, it, it snowballs and it goes downhill. To them, it was an easy solution. You know, it was an easy answer. And so that's why it's a whole different conversation. But when I talk about sales stuff, you're selling value to them. You're not selling a price point. Um, I make... 73%, I'd have to look it up, but about 73% margins on that customer still after moving them to Azure. So you can still make money on it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people sell Datto, they still make money on it. You know, some of us, we argue that it's expensive. It reduces margins. It reduces whatever your reasons are. Many providers still sell it and they still make good money on it. It's all in about how you pitch uh, and propose the solution. And it won't fit for customers. And I'm okay with that. Because if a, if a customer doesn't want the proper solution that we recommend to them, maybe we're not the provider for them. So uh, going, going back to the scripting piece, Zach, I know that you love scripting. Um, what kind of things have you been able to script, Zach, using PowerShell for Azure? Well, I mean, like the, the, the obvious one is like provisioning. Um, if we need to do an Azure, Azure workload, like um, I've set up like basic forms that like I fill out, you know, customer name, location, you know, you know, I have several drop downs of like, okay, like what is this for? Um, is it a DC? Is it an application server? Um, and then when I submit that form, uh, it hits a uh, orchestration server, which fires off a series of scripts that auto provision like about what I'm about to deploy, and uh, that saves you know untold amounts of time. You know that's just one example. Um, other examples are like um, I do uh, VMware as a service, so. Um, and I do that pretty cost effectively. Like as you know, I can do a 32 gig node um, pair of like a pair of nodes with 32 gigs, eight cores, and uh, 600 gigs of SSD accelerated uh, 15,000 RPM SAS data stores for less uh, for less than what it costs to run a, a medium sized application server in azure um but the the real power there is is the vendor i use specifically has bare metal as a service that i can activate via api calls so i can provision physical hardware uh using scripts which is downright amazing so it's just like customers like oh well like we want a bunch of vms in the cloud um, if I, I can actually sit down and be like, all right, well, if it's like four or five VMs and I can give you a, just a dedicated cluster with VMware ESX Enterprise with vCenter Enterprise Plus and NSX, um, I can fire off a script and then like have that provisioned in about 10 minutes, booted, ready to use. And then we have uh, a set of reverse proxies that present the vCenter instance to the end users and to our our technicians um so that you know like uh one of the reasons we do that 
uh, is like you for clients that have an internal IT department, right? And they're like mid-level guys. Like they don't know what Azure is. They don't know how to use Azure, but they want to be able to manage their stuff. Uh, but they know how to ESXi with vCenter because, you know, they spun up the free version and they're screwing around with it and they like it. Uh, so like I give them a cluster and uh, a vCenter instance uh, that they just use like it's on-prem. Um, and that costs less, way less for me than doing it all in Azure. And it's something that they're familiar with. You know, and that's a use case type thing, but you know, that's, you know, one of those ways that I use orchestration and, and uh, scripting. Excellent. Um, and I, and I see that Quentin answered it privately, but I, I just want to go back to Brian's question. Um, as someone with limited Azure experience, how does pricing compare to on-site solutions? Um, and, and I think, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, Quentin. They're, they're not comparable one bit. I mean, yeah, you, you could compare the pricing, but they are two completely different beasts. You know, there, there are completely different reasons to go uh, fully hosted versus on site. Um, if you look at just hardware versus the cost per hour or whatever, um, Azure might end up costing you less, but now you have to worry about um, redundant internet and all that other expensive stuff that goes with having something hosted elsewhere. So that way people can continue to access it 24-7. Am I, am I missing the point there, Quentin? No, no, that's it's it's a completely different sale. You, you can't compare on-premise to cloud, whether it's uh, whatever you want to call it, private cloud or or public cloud, Azure, your colo. They're not a comparable sales discussion. Um, in fact, oftentimes you should not provide both options as a comparative solution to the customer. You know, you need to evaluate which one is the right one and talk to them about that. And if that doesn't work, maybe fall back to the other, right? Maybe if uh, cloud hosted isn't the right solution or maybe you feel that it is right, it's just not gonna work out in the cards for them. Then maybe you can say, well, why don't we look at redoing this with on-premise infrastructure? You know, you're gonna, see, you're gonna see ups and downs. You're gonna see some areas where one might cost more than the other, short-term, long-term. You're going to see one where the other one in the same proposal, certain certain pieces of it are going to cost more or less. So it's completely different sale. You know, it's like going to buy a car. If you go to buy a car and your requirements are low, right? I just need a car with four seats. Well, <laughs> you know, a sales rep might look at you and he might say, well, you know, you need this BMW and, and you might need this, this Honda Civic. Well, you need to filter and evaluate the expectations and needs a little bit more um, to make sure it's the right it's the right solution, and you focus your sales track on that solution. Yeah, about the only time you really compare them is if you have sufficient data to do a TCO analysis. Right. Yep. Yep. TCO ROI. Looking at that, you know we. We, we try to make it easy to do business with. So in certain scenarios where uh, um, 
operational expenditure versus a capital expenditure is more advantageous for the customer or easier pill for them to swallow, we'll then evaluate, do they still need on-premise or do they need cloud? If they need on-premise, we'll work out a leasing or financing situation um, through our, our leasing partners, um, or we'll, we'll pitch Azure if that's the right solution as well. So that's what I mean. There's so, so many different aspects to that that they're not apples to apples. And, and, you know, that, that's one thing I, I didn't even think to say, you know, CapEx versus OpEx is, is sometimes, you know, an easy decision for a company to make. Uh, sometimes they don't care. Sometimes it's a matter of you got the, the deal and you didn't, you know? <laughs> and so if you guys don't know about it, actually, I just had a good conversation with Great America Leasing today. We're a huge Great America partner. I mean, purely because of our relationship on the copier side. But we're a, we're a, <laughs> Mike shakes his head, he knows, are you talking, you know, millions a year in financing through Great America. So we have very good standing with them and uh, they're great partners of ours. Um, they have integrations with ConnectWise, um, with PSAs. And what they'll actually do, a lot of people don't understand, a lot of times, even though you pay one invoice on the copier sign to the leasing agency, the cost per click is a pass through to the dealer. So it's, it's advantageous for the customer because it's one bill. They pay one company and then essentially Great America or whoever the leaser is takes that money and it's a pass through straight to the dealer. So that rate's negotiated with the dealer. On the IT side, it's the same. So I had a good conversation with Great America today. They'll do the same for um, hardware and service as a rental. They call it HAAR because it's still, it's essentially, it's still leased. Um, it's a lease agreement, it's a contractual obligation. And what they'll do is you can invoice the customer one invoice. Um, now in states like California, you know, we don't tax service unless it's tied to hardware or an implementation. So if I sell a server and professional services to implement that, I have to tax the whole thing. Um, if I am selling uh, in this scenario, maybe we're, we're leasing them their infrastructure but then also selling them managed services. Um, they're two different, we, we wanna separate them out as two different line items. Otherwise we have to tax the whole item as a, as a whole thing. Um, so what Great America will actually do kind of getting to the point is they'll allow you to lease the hardware and the customer pays the hardware lease and the managed services lease to Great America. And then the managed services is a pass through to the, to the provider. So that's all negotiated with you. That's all your managed service agreement, your terms and conditions, your contracts, but Great America will basically make it so you can go, hey customer, here's your one invoice for $2,000 a month. And they pay one company and then it comes through as a pass-through. And the integration with ConnectWise will allow you to submit a credit application directly from an opportunity in ConnectWise and then also track and control the invoices and payments um, from the customer to with Great America in ConnectWise. And if Great America doesn't receive a payment from the customer, it opens a service ticket in ConnectWise for you automatically on your sales board. Can, can I just say you are a fantastic ConnectWise salesperson. <laughs> Still not enough for me. Yeah. Um, all right. So this person is curious if anyone is using Chef or something similar to help manage infrastructures. It sounds like it's some combination of RMM plus PowerShell. Well, it's 100% RMM. It's just what scripting language or, or scripts you are invoking with your RMM. 
So for us, it's 100% RMM. So it doesn't sound like, it sounds like Chef is a third party tool. Chef's an automation tool. Okay. Um, there actually is somebody in the channel that uses it. Um, I can't remember his name. Was it Jason? Um, he's yeah. actually out your way, Steve. Jason um, Slagle, wasn't it? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and he uses it pretty heavily, but I can't say that I have any firsthand experience with it. Well, they're also an ISP. So they're a managed services is a small portion, smaller portion of their business. They're primarily a service provider and, you know, as far as internet services. So I know they use Chef, they might use Ansible as well for automating stuff on that side too. They're, they're, they're quite unique though. They're looking at, what are they looking at? Uh, um, they're looking at moving their CRM and stuff over to Zoho One or whatever it is, I think. Wasn't that Jason or was that somebody else? Gotcha. Well, I think it may have been somebody else. But yeah, I think it depends on your needs. I, I think as a service provider, you need to be very careful and you need to select your stack and you need to be very selective about it and make sure it fits your needs. And um, because the whole premises we can make situations that are repeatable very very easily right we, we need to be able to just get in there and do it real quick and so um realistically your rmm should be able to handle majority of it whether they can call powershell or bash or whatever scripting language you're using from directly within their scripting engine or you're using it to trigger a script that's saved as a file somewhere you know, maybe you're using it to call a bash script remotely versus using bash directly within the RMM scripting engine. But I, I at least for us, I, that's why even the Azure stuff, I, I try and trigger it out of lab tech and make sure all that's done in lab tech because that's what we work out of. Lab tech is our tool, you know? So even though it may not directly call something or manipulate something directly on the hardware or hardware in this case, um, it's our tool. It's what we use. Excellent. Um, Zach, anything you'd like to add to the automation portion? Uh, not really. I mean, just learn it. Things like uh, Chocolati, like are amazing for like workstation setup and stuff like that. I mean, you can use automation in a lot of places. Most people don't realize you can use it. I mean, like just, you know, the, the rule of thumb should be if you ever have to do anything more than once, automate it. Yes. Yep. I think it was, um, uh, it was a Tom, I don't remember how to pronounce his last name, Limoncelli or something like that. Said, uh, never spend an hour doing what you can automate in a day. Yeah. So might have been somebody else. Based on that, uh, you know, I like the way you said that, chocolate. Uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out if it's Azure, Azure, or Azure. I sure. like to call it chocolate lately. Uh, we, we use it too. Uh, a lot of our automation is built around it, and we use our RMM to trigger and call those scripts. So we use, um, and I probably pronounce it wrong, but yeah, you know, like saying I say chocolatey, that's probably wrong. I say Azure, but, uh, or Azure. Um, I mean, call Dado even, you know, I brought up that neighbor. You'll hear three people from there even pronounce it different ways too, or, or you know, whatever company you're calling. Right, I've heard Dado more than once. 
Yeah, and so yep. regardless, um, we use, and maybe wrong, I pronounce it chocolatey, um, very, very heavily because it's it's scalable and it's very dynamic. I know a lot of folks use Ninite and Ninite Solution. I think it's really, really good. I think it's a great offering if that fits for what you're trying to achieve. Um, we use chocolatey because I can do more than just third-party patching with it. I can do full spin-up of servers uh, between chocolatey, uh, DSC, which is desired state configuration in PowerShell. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Um, so between those two and just the scripting engine within my R RMM, um, I can actually use my RMM to trigger all those other services as well. Um, we can achieve absurd amounts of automation. I mean, if I run into something one time, we, we try and automate it. You know, if it's something that was triggered because of an alarm or something like that, we figure out what to find or how we can find something to automatically, automatically trigger that automation or remediation. But your, your RMM really should be the heartbeat of your organization and your service delivery. That's, that's just me. Yeah, I could be wrong, but you know, that's the way I feel about it. I want, I want my techs trying to work out a one piece of the pie as much as possible. You know, I don't want them looking at four or five, six different interfaces and portals to achieve one thing. That's, that's not the objective of a managed service provider. You know, the objective of a managed service providers is being able to do it efficiently and do it quickly and do it proficiently as well, you know. And we do that by achieving those results with the tools that we have. And the other piece too is when you look at automation or scripting, there's no box. You can't be confined into a box when you're looking at that. You need to step back and look at the entire situation and think of how you can use your current stack to um, get to that point, whether you're calling those third-party services from within your tools or not, um, and really just eliminate the box because that's where you're going to see the best results. I, I see people look at a tool and they feel like, oh, I can only do this with this tool. It lacks this or it has this. Ultimately, most things, you can make them do what you want them to do. It's just a matter of how you execute that and achieve that. So that's going to be the biggest benefit is just stepping back away from that and using those tools. Right, exactly. I mean, like what makes more sense taking a week to onboard a customer and just throw agents on everything and figure it out or take three months and set it up. So every time you slap an agent on a workstation, it automatically sets the workstation up without being touched. Excellent. Well, I think, uh, so somebody in Discord brought up a good point. Um, you know, the other piece to that, which uh, probably doesn't get touched on enough, but that's that's our purpose too. It's done the same way every time. Um, you know, they mentioned uh, consistency and accuracy. The second you invoke a human to do something, you're asking for problems and you're asking for errors. Um, if you can automate things and do it in a scripted and automatable manner, you know, or automated manner, I'm sorry, you, you result, you remove the probability of error. We're all humans. We make mistakes. Make them constantly, daily. If I can automate something, I'm less likely to make a mistake. And so, you know, going back to time saving is not just one piece. Of, there's a lot that goes into that. And that's, that's one of the biggest ones is removing human error. Maybe you forgot a step. 
maybe that checklist, you didn't print it out that day or you lost it. So you started a new checklist or whatever it was and you're, you're marking off your steps and you forgot one or, you know, somebody else did it. You can't guarantee, you know, I've heard, well, they checked off the step. Well, it doesn't mean they actually did it. So now I got to trust, but verify, right? Well, with automation, you remove that. It's, it's guaranteed because you wrote it to do it a certain way. Interesting. Well, <clears throat> we're, we're coming up to, uh, to two 30 here. Does, does anyone have any last questions before we wrap up for our, our awesome panelists today? I'd say don't all speak up at once, but <laughs> you're not allowed to speak. <laughs> um, Quentin, do you have any, any final words that you'd like to leave people with? No, I, I mean, well, I think I talked a lot as it is, but. Um, yeah, you kind of did. <laughs> I like what we do. You know, I, I like the service that we're able to provide. I like this community. I think these, it, it gives us the opportunity to see how other folks are doing it. And well, the way I do it may not work for you. It may not work for Mike, it may not work for Zach, but we might find certain pieces that each other are doing that work for us as well. And so um, it's a good benefit to have this community. The biggest thing, like I said, is, is you know, going back earlier for you folks, whether it's just the Hyper-V or, or VMware or virtualization in general, just take a, look, step a look, take a step back and take a look at the situation and evaluate it from the business objective. You know, this is centered around virtualization. Well, why do we always virtualize? Because of the business expectation that those, those servers are now portable, they're highly available, they're easier to back up, they're easier to migrate. Those all fall in line with business objectives. It's not just because we think some technology product is cool. The customer doesn't care how cool your technology product is. This allows us to align our cool technology products and the hype that we have behind it with their business objectives and virtualization is one big piece of that. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at these situations, really, really look at that. I've heard people say, you know, virtualizing one, one server is a waste of time. It's not, I promise you it's not. If you think that it is, you're doing something wrong and you're not evaluating your options and your tools that you have out there available to you. Worst case is I can pop a, 3040 from their one of their offices and throw that server on there to get them up and running if I need to in, in an emergency. That in and of itself right there was a benefit to the 15 extra minutes it took to install the Hyper-V role on their physical hardware and right click and hit new VM, you know? I mean, that right there is, is that should answer any question right there as to why we do what we do with virtualization. And, you know, one thing to understand about virtualization as well is that it needs to be used correctly. Yes. Um, I actually had a former employer, and I'm not employed there anymore, uh, be, where the, the owner of the company came to my desk and said, I really hate this virtualization thing. We should have <laughs> never done it. And, like, I honestly was speechless because, like, wow, right? And well, let's put that in context. They had two very high powered, like uh, 128 core hosts, dual sockets, you know, just like all of the RAM, like something like 196 gigs of RAM running, you know, 100 VMs 
on a storage sus subsystem that was two basic NAS boxes with 7,200 <laughs> RPM drives. On a RAID 5. That, uh, uh, no, they were RAID 10, oh. they were, but they were 7,200 RPM drives, like Seagate Constellations or something like that. Uh, and like, guess what? The performance was absolutely horrid. And, you know, this guy was going on and on about how he spent so much money on these hosts. Uh, and, like, why don't we have better performance? And, like, you know, I was like, you need to spend about another 15000 on storage. They wouldn't do it. Well, we can't afford that. We can't afford that. This should just work. And you can see why I don't work there anymore. 100, let me see, 100 VMs. You're going to be spending more than fifteen grand on storage. Ah, yeah. Um and like the all the like vast majority of them were linux vms and like they actually worked well like mysql databases like they had like what could be argued as semi decent performance for 15 people and i don't know how there was magic like maybe mysql was caching a boatload of stuff in ram <laughs> but uh yeah like it was it was like uh I still have nightmares about that. I, ha I had disk latency of over 500 milliseconds on that storage subsystem. It was spin locked to the max. That's, that's one of the biggest things that I learned early on trying to do any kind of clustering or anything like that. You know, obviously you need uh, shared storage. Well, at the time you did, um, you needed some kind of shared storage and, one of the biggest reasons that they told people not to virtualize SQL was because nobody properly planned for their IOPS. No one ever did. Um, but then solid state started coming around or faster drives. People started realizing, hey, you know, I'm running SQL. Maybe I should listen to Microsoft run a RAID 10. Um, and, and it started coming around. And that's why you see a lot more stuff now that's getting virtualized uh, when they said that it wasn't supposed to. But IOPS, that's the one. Everybody has has the, the common sense to look at processor, memory, disk space. Nobody looks at the disk speed, the performance of your storage. And that, that's, all, that's one mistake that uh, a lot of people will only make one time. You know, yeah, I- uh, It could no, be said that virtualization lives and dies by storage speed. You know, I feel like there are some people that will continue to make that mistake over and over and over. And that's that's why they have a lot of former employees like Zach. I worked for an MSP that was very similar. And much like you, that's that's why I was not there. Uh, it was in between uh, bouncing between two enterprise environments. I took a short pit stop at an MSP. And uh, um, uh, it was very similar. Their, their standard go-to because it was a price-based conversation, was virtualized with 7,200 RPM drives on a RAID 5 for everything. That was the answer to everything. While then the techs hated virtualization, the customers hated virtualization, you know, and it was just, it was a mess. And you can't backpedal out of that. You can't fix that. The way to fix that is by spending more money. So... <laughs> Um, you know, I, I went there to be their CTO. They recruited me. I went there and that was just stuff that they were not going to change as an MSP because they wanted to consistently be able to provide the cheapest solution so the customer wouldn't say no. And their answer to that was that exact implementation. 
time and time again. Uh, also, the, the owner, you know, had a feeling that uh, nothing else besides RAID 5 mattered. Anything else is pointless because you couldn't expand them. My RAID 5, I can expand it all day long. You know, it's saying, well, there's, there's sacrifices to that. Um, but yeah, it, sometimes it's not about the, the product. It's about the solution as a whole, which is the product and the service, you know, um, together. And that can truly affect the uh, way that the customer perceives something. Like Zach was saying, you know, they, they couldn't understand how they invested all this money and why does virtualization suck so bad? Well, it wasn't the virtualization. They actually spent the right money in the right areas where they were told to. It sounds like those are heavy investments, but somebody proposed the wrong salute, the wrong product to meet the expectations. And now it, they had a distaste for the entire solution. So it's not just virtualization. Sometimes it's, it's the person implementing it too. Right. In, in my case, it's what led directly to my company. They hired me to build an MSP, and I did, and these are the kind of decisions they were making, and it eventually led to a come-to-Jesus conversation about, you are terrible at this, and you just need to stop. And so I talked them into it. They did and gave me their customer base, and here I am. Good for you. <clears throat> well, guys, uh, we are going to wrap up. Feel free to stick around for what, what I like to call the after party. Um, for those of you watching this on YouTube, sorry, you don't get the after party. Um, <clears throat> thanks, everyone. Uh, next week, we've got Third Wall joining us for a demonstration on their LabTech plugin. So uh, feel free to hop on mspwebinars.com to learn more about that and to check out all of the pre-recorded webinars and all the bonus content. Uh, thank you so much to Mike, Zach, and Quentin, who I roped into this 30 seconds before we started, uh, or maybe after we started. I'm still not sure. Uh, I appreciate all three of you guys. Wait, was I involved in this? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. You, you didn't say much. No. Um, I, I do. I, I appreciate all three of you guys, and I hope to have you three back on uh, again for another webinar. Uh, thanks so much, everyone. You all have a great day. I can never find the button to stop YouTube. Are you the matchmaker? Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm, I'm seeing. I'm seeing what we can make happen here. So this says it's still streaming on YouTube. It's it's streaming again to an unlisted one. Oh, are you the MSP matchmaker? I am. It's like a whatever. I'm whatever you guys want me to be, as long as you pay me on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> I will whore myself out for the right price. Okay. Twenty dollars to strip. Let's go. I'm not even going to look that up, so that way I don't feel obligated. Uh, I don't know what that is. Excellent, excellent. So. So, so let, let's, let's have uh, Quentin, why don't you go over like your stack real quick and sure. what you typically charge your customers and what you offer? Sure. I got probably about another 15 minutes or so. I might have a call coming here in the next minute. That's fine. Uh, I actually get to go deliver a proposal today. So that'll be fun. Um, so uh, our stack is uh, our standard stack is all inclusive. Um, we don't do tiering. 
We don't uh, allow the customer to pick and choose. Um, that happens to work for us. Um, uh, we, we offer them the solution and they either buy it or don't. Um, it's not out of uh, arrogance or cockiness or anything like that. It's purely yes, it based is. out of our ability to scale and support it and meet the expectations that we're promising them um, and being able to do it efficiently. You know, um, we uh, include uh, Office 365 business premium as a standard. Um, right now we're, we're moving to the Sophos stack entirely. Uh, we were Bitdefender for endpoint and servers and stuff like that. So we're moving over to Sophos's entire stack. Um, we were using their encryption stuff too. So Sophos Endpoint Advanced, Sophos Intercept X, uh, Sophos Server Advanced. Um, we do Sophos XG firewalls. That's included in our MSA. Uh, we provide the hardware onboarding um, and then the monthly subscriptions included in their managed service agreement. Uh, Veeam as our backup solution. We include a BDR appliance that's scaled the size based on the customer's environment during onboarding and then we do rental vm licenses um right now reflection is our spam filtering um we're kind of evaluating that i've been pretty happy with a couple other options out there um as much as i'd like to move to sofo central it's not future parity with reflection yet um but looking at exchanges advanced um online threat protection and, and their stuff that might be a good move for us it's like a dollar 40 or something like that. So it's, it's not too bad priced. Um, I'm on that. It works really well. Yeah, I, I like it. I like what I've seen so far. Reflection was nice because it's like 59 cents per mailbox. And it worked really, really well for a long time. Um, What's the difference uh, between Reflection and, and 365? Uh, basically advanced protection. I mean, just different or, offerings, different engines, different feature okay. sets. Um, what, know, I guess but, I guess what I'm asking what 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 do you get more with the advanced exchange protection versus what normally comes with 365? The biggest piece is the the built-in integration. I mean, it's it's native to the exchange online environment. Um, the scripting capabilities for editing and monitoring um, templates and and okay feature sets, things like that. Um, Reflection, we have integration in the ConnectWise for it, for spam stats, for reports and things like that, as well as billing, even though we don't bill our customer for each line item. Uh, so that's one thing going back a little bit. We don't bill our customers for each line item. We're all in seat price, so they see one line item on their invoices. Um, but we have all of our products are A, their monthly subscription models. So Sophos, we're MSP Connect Flex. So it's month to month. Same with uh, Reflection and and uh, Veeam and the Sophos XG firewall, all of our products fit the model that we sell to our customers. And we make sure they all integrate into ConnectWise uh, as well at a minimum for billing because we need to track that to accurately monitor yeah. our margins and see where we're at on that. Um, so the customer doesn't see that. That's hidden from them on their invoice. But for us, I can quickly run a report against agreements and see what my profit margins are on my agreements to make sure they're not out of line. So you know, the customer doesn't see it, we, we track it. Uh, if you're an MSP and you're not tracking your costs 100%, you're wrong. Because you have no idea, you have no nothing to base or gauge anything off of. Um, so uh, we include all you can eat on site and remote support. Our primary objective is always remote. 
um, for a number of reasons. It benefits us, but as well as the customer. You know, we always pitch it to them. We want to get you back in productive as quickly as possible. Our way of do that is to remotely get in and take care of it because we can do that faster than we can drive to you, assuming we have somebody available to drive to you. Um, so, um, but we do have an abuse clause in there that states we can uh, evaluate your current pricing structure. And if your prices do not meet the expected cost essentially of what an account with your metrics and specifics would, would typically cost us, we can either discuss price changes or cancel your contract. Um, so I think that was it. Oh, uh, OpenDNS, Huntress. Um, um, as we're moving to the Sophos stack, we're able to evaluate maybe some of our other products because a lot of their products fit needs of others and see what we need. But right now that's pretty much what we have. And then, you know, the typical quarterly business review, technology planning with them. Um, I think that's it. What's Come your on, seat I, price? Uh, our typical seat price is one twenty-five. Uh, in compliance environments, it's one fifty, and we're at about a seventy percent profit margin. Um, we're looking at scaling both of those up because we can, um, because it allows us to provide different levels of service. Um, the market can bear it. Maybe your market can't. That's why there's different um, averages across different markets. Um, the argument is that I'm from California, so I'm able to charge that. I'm waiting for somebody to say that. Mike? What? I'm sorry. Uh, why, I <laughs> charge, why, why I can charge what I charge because I'm in California. Damn straight. Uh, Inflation state. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm in Northern California. Uh, I'm in... A couple of my branches are in a little bit more impoverished regions of California, uh, and you know, high unemployment rate. Um, what is this? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, put the better the use. Average, uh, the median income is like thirty-two thousand dollars a year. So it, it comes that we're a little bit more picky and choosy with our clients. We set our price, and if they don't fit it, they don't fit it as well. But yeah, so that's that's basically it. The reason for the compliance environments for the higher rate is we uh, include encryption by default, um, both for the endpoints and um, email, and data loss. Well, we include data loss protection as a standard, but um, we start to fine tune and hone that stuff in a lot more, and the customer doesn't get a choice of whether they're going to buy encryption or not. We're encrypting their stuff. Um, and so uh, by including it, we remove cost objections. We remove the nickel and diamond. It's part of your service and we include that. Um, so that's, that's the big difference between the two. Excellent. Zach, do you mind running through your stack real quick? Um, sorry, I was responding to a ticket. It's okay. <coughs> and I have to step away for a moment, but just keep going. So um, I run SolarWinds MSP RMM and uh, I use their backup, uh, their Bitdefender. I augment that with InterceptX from Sophos. Um, I also use their web protection client, which uh, does you know the content filtering, URL filtering, uh, DNS filtering, that kind of stuff. Um, everything in the stack is included. Um, I do do tiering, but my customers aren't exactly aware 
that the tiers exist. We just have like three baselines, depending on the size of the customer that we kind of start with and then build a solution that fits their needs. Um, and uh, I do Hass. Uh, my most successful Hass implementations are on-prem RDS, but I'm thinking about doing that via cloud. Uh, right now, I'm in a very rural market, so getting reliable backup internet is very tough, uh, which kind of limits my ability to uh, move premise equipment off-site. Um, I don't think I really heard what else everybody was covering. Uh, I, you know, my backups include disaster recovery, so like I have a colo where I spin stuff up, or I can spin it up in Azure or AWS. Um, uh, the my PSA is actually MSP Manager. Just that works well for us because we're a small team. Like my entire company is like three people. Um, some of the automation stuff that we do that's like kind of we include in the stack is our hardening scripts. Uh, we rework the network to be more more secure. Like we do segmentation, uh, server hardening, workstation hardening. Um, we're doing vulnerability scans like every week of everything. Um, you know, uh, you know, we do PCI, HIPAA, you know, FINRA, GLBA, socks. I don't have any customers that actually need socks, but like I know how to do it. And we're we're very security focused. That's like kind of our our niche. Um, one of my one of one of my guys is is a pen tester. Like we can do that stuff. Um, you know, he does a lot of uh, like zero day research and stuff on his own. And uh, we try to be like really really aware of like threat landscape and you know risk assessment and and all of that fun stuff. And we're really exploring the idea of going the MSSP route with uh, managed seam and sock services and that kind of stuff. So we're doing the same. We're trying, we're, we're evaluating good partners for sock and seam right now. Who are you looking at? Oh, we looked at Vigilant. We looked at um, who's the other one? Our, our primary premise is we wanted to have integration with ConnectWise. You know, so that really limits our scope <laughs> unless we develop some kind of API integration or something like that for them. But uh, let's see. I think it was Vigilant, and there was another one too. Shark something, I think, is another one. I actually have a meeting with Vigilant tomorrow. It was black something. Carbon black? Black Stratus. Oh, black Stratus. Okay. So I was like, how the hell did you get carbon black on the phone? <laughs> uh, Vigilant and, and black Stratus. And so... Um, um, the yeah, black Stratus is the, the, the shark people, cyber shark. Okay. Yeah, the biggest piece for us, like you said, is, is truly understanding in depth the compliancy regulations and services that you're selling. So that's, that's the biggest for us. We're not trying to be another boxed up service provider that says, oh, we sell you whatever compliance. No, we want to understand so we can have at length conversations with you what that actually means as a customer. Right, right. And honestly, the compliance is the easy part. 
Like, you know, you can get compliance to be pretty cookie cutter once you understand it. Um, the hard part is, is I have never in my life seen an outsourced sock that was worth a damn. Um, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding of what people think a sock is. And like in the MSP space, I've seen it mostly treated like, like uh, a sock is, is incident response. It's people reacting to detections, reacting to threats. And, you know, yeah, incident response is an important aspect of what a SOC does, but it's not the only thing. Um, and being proactive as an outsource SOC is extremely difficult because it requires a very, very, very in-depth understanding and knowledge of the customer's environment. Yeah, they, they should be analyzing behavior and heuristics and being able to provide recommendations before stuff happens instead of just after. Right, yeah. You know, they should be in there pen testing and risk assessing and, and doing all of that stuff. And it really only works if you in, own the entire IT vertical for a client because you do need that level of integration with internal assets and like the systems administrators that are managing stuff day to day. And so like, if you have like an, you know, them on a fully managed, all you can eat, like we're handling everything agreement, then you could probably jump into uh, doing sock for them. But just as a standalone sock service for some random, you know, enterprise that needs to check a box, like that's really hard to do successfully. Well, fortunately for us, we have our copiers on their network too, so we just own the whole network. You know. <laughs> yeah, you you want to turn this into uh, discussing uh, managed print versus managed IT? <laughs> you know, when you have managed IT customers, it's easy to get in for managed print, and when you got yeah. managed print customers, it's easy to get in for managed IT. Well, then you just control the whole network, and then you can control the security everywhere. You're not just a. <laughs> Now, I think that's very important. I think that's the challenge. You know, a lot of folks are selling outsourced SOC, um, even MSSPs to large enterprises and things like that. And that, that puts you at a little bit of a mercy at their internal policies and dictations as to how that's happened and carried out. I much prefer our, our model where we're all inclusive and not just handling a small piece of the pie um, because that can quickly devalue the service. You know, it goes back to that same conversation we had with virtualization. Nothing about virtualization inherently is good or bad. You know, obviously there's a lot of benefits to it when it's done right. There's a lot of disadvantages like you saw when it's done wrong. Stock and, and um, their services or providing those services can be the same. You can have the best SOC team in the world, but when you team that up with a horrible internal IT department, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like shitty, shitty IT departments like are the biggest vulnerability there is. <laughs> or they're not taking your recommendations or your your um, remediation attempts or steps or information you're providing. So quickly you're they look at it and they go, oh, our sock sucks. Well, no, there's a lot. Right. More yeah. It's the same that. analogy to the virtualization. Shitty virtualization makes everybody hate virtualization. A shitty shitty IT team that doesn't take recommendations from the SOC makes people think SOCs are shitty. 
the fully managed, you know, makes that a lot easier <laughs> to control that relationship, which is, which is why we are a fully managed IT provider. We, we offer fully managed contracts because we can control the entire expectation instead of just providing a managed backup. While you provide a managed backup, you can't control the expectations. You can't even really promise anything. Right. I mean, look, look at Equifax. Them yeah. having an outsourced SOC would have done nothing. Nothing. Right. Um, all you have is an internal IT de team doing stupid shit, which led to a breach. And if they'd have had an outsourced SOC, the outsourced SOC is now on the hook for, you know, everything that happened. Because, well, we had a SOC. They should have been protecting us. It's like, well, you can't protect against stupid. Well, clearly they would have thrown them under the bus, too. Based on their absolutely, yeah. And that, like, like if I'm going to be a sock provider, that is not a position I want to be in. Right. I think I think ultimately, to some extent, what it also comes down to, you you can very clearly set proper expectations for any of your managed services, whether it is fully managed or backups or sock. But it's about setting that expectations and, and having a relationship with the customer at that point to the point where you can come in and say, um, hey, it wasn't our SOC. It was your IT department. And here's why. But right. you need to have a certain level and a certain relationship that's value driven with them where they're going to value you coming in and talking to them and presenting that to them. Because you'll probably see, um, you know, the other side of our business, when we come in and do solutions-based implementations that are on their network, all of a sudden, the product sucks. No, the implementation of our product uncovered underlying issues that you've had for years. Well, no, because I'm the IT guy. It's my network. My network is perfect. Their network is their firstborn child, and there is nothing wrong with it. It is an angel. <laughs> And so you need to make sure that you set different expectations and have a different relationship if you're doing partially managed things. Right. And, I, you know, like one thing I wanted to point out during the live stream, but I didn't want to call you out in front of everybody, but you, you talked about how Azure and AWS are secure because DOD uses them. That's actually kind of a misnomer. Um, in the hardcore cybersecurity realm, AWS and Azure is treated as an untrusted environment. Um, and when DOD is sitting in Azure or AWS, they're actually siloed. They get their own. They get their own. Yeah, and so, and so that's like one of the big discussions on the cybersecurity side of things. Is like if you take your cybersecurity seriously, you can't go Azure or AWS because of all the proof of concept stuff out there of, of jumping uh, tenants. Like right. it's, it's like, you know, shared, uh, you know, with the, the, the shared RAM and stuff like that. Like there've been dudes that have been able to exploit uh, VMs through in different tenants through shared memory. It's crazy hard to do, but when your concern is like nation state threat actors, like that's the stuff you have to care about. No, I, 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 I agree with that. Um, when you look at it, that it was a very high level and, and vague reason for it. Um, typically, when you're doing a, a FUD scenario with a customer, I'm not going to go down into the technical specification and details. 
reality. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, in the context of, like, for most people, it's fine and perfectly secure. Yeah. But, like, you know, if you're a DOD um, outsourced, you know, foreign intelligence service, like, maybe you, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, facts. <laughs> My faxes don't make noise. <laughs> we got FOIP. Fax over IP. There you go. They don't make any noise. It comes straight to my inbox. <laughs> don't get me started on fax and hippo. Um, so, you know, it's more of a, it's more of a, a threat-based scenario, really, because you see it on, like, Arsys admin and stuff all the time, and, well, you can't trust the cloud, and you know it's really people trying to justify their jobs is what it is. And I guarantee, right, yeah. I guarantee you, I can penetrate that network much faster than they can penetrate Azure or anywhere else. Um, I, the customer I'm doing a proposal with today, their current IT provider doesn't like the cloud. It's insecure. It's dangerous. Ooh, it's not in your environment. Yeah, it's a. Well, I'm, it's a it's a risk assessment question, like risk I'm, risk probabilities and things like that, like. Well, they've you got know, port 21 and port 25 open to the outside world, and they're a medical provider. Right, yeah. But hey, <laughs> sure is insecure. <laughs> you know, right. So it's, it's really, they're FUD-based scenarios, you know. Is, is, you know, my, my server in my closet uh, behind a, you know, $9 deadbolt lock is more secure than, you know, Azure with its SSAE SOC 2 compliant, SAE 16 SOC 2 and armed guards. You know, that's more secure than the cloud. Yeah, it's, I've heard that before. Yeah. All right, guys, sorry, I've been really quiet, here. guys, but I'm sorry, did you say something, Mike? No, no I was saying, I got to hop off because uh, it's hot as balls in this room right now and I want to open my door. Um, I don't, I don't want to know anything about yeah, you do. Your uh... no, um, <clears throat> yeah, but uh, I got to hop off of here because I also have a call coming up here in a little bit. Um, yeah, it was great talking to you guys. Uh, hope to be back on here soon. Awesome. So I've been really quiet uh, because <clears throat> my my kid, uh, she. So I, I've got two kids. The older one, the um, the even more devious one. She got this uh, fantastic idea uh, where where she thought um, she's going to try and pull a fast one. So um, we've we've got a rule, and the rule is if uh, if on your daily scorecard you get an eighty five or better, then you get screen time. So this is the scorecard she brings home. <laughs> She didn't. She she didn't change this at all. She didn't change one of these numbers. She didn't even change this one. She just crossed this out, and in her own handwriting, made an ugly eight and the nicest five she's ever made. And uh, so, so my wife's cousin is is who watches the kids during the day, and she said so. She brought this home. Uh, how how bad do we ground her, or do we do we play along and believe her? And and I said, here's what we do: tell her uh, if if you tell me your teacher changed it, 
then you can go and you can have your screen time tonight. That's fine. You can get your iPad, play your games, watch your videos, whatever you want to do. Tomorrow, I'll call your teacher and I'll, I'll make sure. And uh, if, if the teacher says that you lied, then you don't get screen time for a week. And so she, she asked Genevieve, how would you like to proceed? She's like, I don't. <laughs> she went to the, she went and got a snack and went outside and played. So, <laughs> so, so, so what I want to know is how many times do you guys have clients try and pull this crap on you where they, they try and fudge some crap and hand it to you and say, look, you gave me this quote and it's a thousand dollar less than you're charging me. You, you guys ever have some, some crappy shady clients or, or anything like that? Never had them manipulate a quote directly. Of course I use e-signatures, so they can't. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. One I'm about to drop uh, this week actually, but that's because well, they should drop. <laughs> yep. Literally being too cheap. Always. All right. Always I got to drop, guys. Uh, I'm going to do the same. Uh, thanks, everyone, for sticking around. Uh, if you would like to continue to hang out in Zoom, you are welcome to do so. I just popped a link in the chat here. I'm going to close the webinar down, but there's a Zoom room that I keep open pretty much whenever there's not a webinar. So hop in that link. It's zoom.us slash J and the Zoom number uh, after the J is slash 330-247-2471. I will see you guys uh, in Zoom. And if not, I will see you next week for Third Wall. Take care, everyone. Have you been looking for a way to stay focused on your goals and grow your MSP? Accountability groups from Rocket MSP can help. We offer weekly accountability sessions that meet online with a group of your peers. Your success begins with accountability. Go to www.rocketmsp.io to join your accountability group today.